don't think that this is going to serve as a death knell for theaters. We believe that theaters offer a unique customer value proposition for both avid and casual moviegoers. And the past six months should serve as a reminder of the significance many people place on out-of-home experiences. From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you are an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We are living a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across the global markets. I'm Christopher Snow, the U.S. Head of Research, and I'm here with Hunter Martin, Senior Media Analyst, and Matt Sloto, Co-Head of High Yield, Senior Analyst, Special Situations. Hello, Hunter. Hello, Matt. Welcome. Hi, Chris. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, glad you're here. Today, we're going to discuss the movie theaters and specifically AMC Entertainment. The exhibitor sector has been acutely affected by the coronavirus, which has exposed some of the longer standing, sometimes existential concerns. So there's a lot to talk about today. Hunter, Matt, you've recently launched on AMC Entertainment, which is one of the more stressed exposures to this issue. Before we get into some of these longer-term issues like exclusivity windows and entertainment competition, Hunter, let me start with you. Could you set the stage with the ongoing chicken or the egg issue with audiences and content and with audience down you know, 85% or so? That means somebody's going to the movie. What are they watching? Thanks, Chris. So with the exception of Christopher Nolan's Tenet, which is slowly built up to around $50 million at the domestic box office, around $350 million worldwide, Moviegoers have been pretty starved for blockbuster fare, and they're having to make do with just a trickle of mid-budget first-run films, rounded out with some re-releases of popular films like Star Wars or Jurassic Park. I think the most notable recent development has been the success, and I use that term pretty loosely, of some of these re-releases when compared to the first-run films. Aside from Tenet, only two movies have cracked $20 million at the box office. Hocus Pocus, which is a Disney comedy from 1993 about witches, actually took the number two position at the box office a few weeks ago, and is now up to over $4 million of ticket revenue. For comparison, most of the original releases have been unable to pass $5 million, which is just pretty ugly. Looking forward, the slate is pretty bare through the end of 2020. The calendar this month includes several Halloween-themed re-releases like The Addams Family, Nightmare Before Christmas, and Monsters, Inc., and following a spate of schedule changes, with some potential blockbusters like the Bond film that was pushed to 2021, or other films that have been moved to streaming services, the only films that I would view as major releases are the second installment in the Croods franchise, which is set to be released around Thanksgiving, as well as Wonder Woman 1984. And that's currently scheduled for release on Christmas Day, but I think there's a pretty high risk that, that gets pushed into probably March 2021. So we're really looking at another lean couple of months in terms of the theatrical sleep. Thanks, Hunter. These numbers are shocking. When you think of last year's Avengers did, uh, I think it was about $850 million at the U.S. box. Even a high mark with uh, Tenet at 50 is pretty incredible. So you know, without the content, as the, these guys are pushing some of these releases into next year, and you know, obviously the audience are pretty skittish about safety, you know, we've seen headlines of theater rentals for 100 bucks. You know, does that do anything to mitigate this cash bleed? You know, you got sports, legacy film stock. There's something that could go up there. And you know, 100 bucks seems somewhat reasonable for a family or several families to spring for. Thanks. So I think that that recent trend towards $100 rentals, it does help a little with cash, but it's clearly not a sustainable business model. And in my view, when I hear that, it's really an indication of several troubling issues. 
First, hearing that tells me that a lot of people are still really uncomfortable sitting in an auditorium with strangers. Second, it shows just how many empty screens these exhibitors have that aren't being utilized due to low demand. And then finally, it really highlights the fixed cost nature of the exhibitor business model, where the overhead is so significant that it's worthwhile. It makes sense for them to try to just squeeze a couple hundred dollars from a screen with a private showing. Yeah, I mean, there's really a, an extraordinary liquidity gap. And what we're going to touch on is we're seeing some risk that major theater chains are potentially going bankrupt. I'm curious on the content side or, or the studios, are you seeing a similar degree of pain? You know, if you think about the industry overall, there's a symbiosis. Most of these, you know, historically, the, the top movies are always sort of unexisting franchises. Is, is this potentially going to be a smaller business going forward? Great question. I think it's probably two separate questions there. And I'll start with kind of what I see as the impact on movie studios. The major studios, and this Disney, Warner Brothers, Universal, they're by and large parts of just huge diversified media telecom conglomerates. What that means is they're generally not the primary driver of profits or cash flows of their parent company. And just as a result, I think the COVID-related disruption to the theatrical industry, it's more of an annoyance for them rather than an existential issue, as we've seen for exhibitors. From a financial perspective, most of the studios, and Disney's probably the exception here just due to the domination of the blockbuster market and abnormally high level of profitability, most of these studios actually see a small positive cash flow impact in the near term. That's related to the production shutdown and the lack of releases. And this is kind of due to the fact that the actual production of a film is quite capital intensive and all of the marketing expenses, which can exceed over $100 million for large films, they're also made up front. In theory, the relatively solid financial footing of the studios should lead them to assist their partners, the exhibitors, during this difficult period. But we're not really seeing that. Shifting to the outlook for the domestic box office, we think the size of the market is going to certainly contract relative to that $11 billion or so level we saw over the previous five years. And that contraction is going to be driven by a few factors. We think there's going to be some rationalization just in the number of theater locations in the U.S., which is frankly an oversaturated market, and that's going to create a natural headwind to attendance. On the studio side, we think that these studios are going to continue releasing their big-budget franchise films in theaters rather than taking them straight to streaming platforms. Here's some numbers for context. In 2019, the top 20 films generated around 50% of the total box office, and the top 50 films generated around 75% of total ticket revenue. So those major releases should be sufficient to support the overall ecosystem. From a supply perspective, I think that kind of there's going to be more pressure on that long tail of the small to medium budget films that generate that remaining 25% of the domestic box office. Profitability for that class of film has already been under pressure pre-COVID, and I think that they're now just much more likely to either be released straight to a streaming platform or maybe just not made at all. That's interesting. And I guess keeping to some of those longer term issues, The studios and exhibitors have been publicly and privately fighting over the right model for cinematic distribution. On on the one hand, the box office brings in a significant sum of a movie's revenue life cycle in in really just a a short period of time. But on the other one, the studios have their own pain points. They've lost key DVD sales to modernization. They're looking to shorten the exclusivity windows so as to leverage some of that marketing spend, which Hunter, you spoke about up top over the next point in the distribution cycle. I, I guess, could you talk a bit about, you know, that exclusivity windows and where, where that line's going to be? Sure. 
Well, this topic of the shrinking exclusivity window has actually come up a lot recently in our discussions with investors. So, very brief explainer. The exclusivity window is the contractually determined period of time, which is currently around 90 days, three months, between when a film is released in theaters and then when it goes on sale for home video. And that window has been gradually contracting over time. But AMC and Universal reached a fairly transformational agreement back in July that's going to allow Universal to sell films via premium video on demand. And we abbreviate that as PVOD, and it's essentially just an expensive $20 home rental. So they're going to be able to sell their films via PVOD as soon as 17 days after their theatrical release. Although so far this agreement only applies to AMC and Universal, we think it's highly likely the other studios and theater chains are going to come to similar agreements before long. So this is a huge step change to the historical exclusivity window for the industry. And we think the net impact will be negative for theater operators via a reduction in theatrical attendance in the near term. We also think there's going to be a shift in consumer habits in the media term as people kind of understand, hey, maybe we can just, we don't need to wait so long. Instead of going to the theater, we can just wait a few weeks and then we'll just watch it at home. So while this is negative for the industry, I want to stress that I think we're a lot less bearish on really the degree of the negative impact for theaters than most of the people that we spoke with recently. Part of this is a disagreement linked to kind of the framework that you should use when examining the issue. I think there's a tendency for people to look at the topic from the perspective of the consumer or from the owners of the theater chains. However, what we've seen recently in the market is that the suppliers, the studios, they seem to have the dominant position in the industry. And when starting from the perspective of studios, we think that in many cases, it's not in their best interest to drastically collapse that window, at least for most films. So why do we think that? Well, most people were probably surprised to hear that around 50% of their revenue generated over the life of a film comes after that initial release in the box office. And then second, the performance of a film's theatrical release has a direct impact on the amount of DVD and home video sales, as well as just licensing revenue in all the future TV windows. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, if a film is popular, people are more likely to buy it on home video and kind of streamers are going to see more value in having that on their platform. So while studios can get some additional leverage off those marketing dollars and kind of boost some sales in this new PVOD window, we think they're likely cannibalizing a fair amount of downstream revenue when they do so. So as a result, we think that studios, they're going to appreciate kind of having that option to quickly move their releases to PVOD, but they're primarily going to do so with the movies that are I guess you could characterize them as more of like duds that were never destined to do well at the box office. We think for successful films, they're probably not going to be too aggressive in exercising that PVOD option. They're going to let those films run in theaters as long as possible, just in order to kind of avoid that cannibalization of future revenues. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you've talked there a little bit about that balance of power. You know, you think about exhibiting films is really not that complicated a model. You know, you take a dark box that's typically lease, and then movies are shown in them from, you know, maybe a dozen or so studios on a heavily negotiated basis. You know, if you think about the impacts of COVID on, or on the overall economy, you, you know, we certainly see share pain. And, and in this sector, you have the landlords, the studios, the exhibitors, and the customers. You know, how do you think about the virus and the impacts and Who's going to give and absorb more of that pain? And, and where do you sort of see that along the chain? Well, we think that exhibitors are going to absorb the most pain since they are already burning just a sizable amount of cash each and every day, so long as attendance remains at a fraction of historical levels. And 
For AMC, which is highly levered, we previously estimated that the company needs attendance of around two-thirds of 2019 levels just to reach EBITDA break-even and 90% of historical levels to reach free cash flow break-even. One idea that we've been discussing a lot lately is our assumption that all exhibitors are not going to bear this burden equally. We think that smaller chains are going to have a tougher time surviving and that this should result in eventual market share gains for the big exhibitors. Now, the U.S. exhibition industry is very fragmented. We've got a lot of regional kind of mom and pop chains. And so far this year, we've seen two of the top 10 domestic circuits already file for Chapter 11, including Studio Movie Grill, which filed just this week. However, despite being in the top 10, both of these chains that have filed for Chapter 11, they only have around 400 screens, and that's compared to over 8,000 screens at AMC, which I think highlights just the scale differential we're talking about between the top players in the industry and everyone else. Now, landlords, they're also going to feel a lot of pain. The vast majority of AMC's landlords have agreed to rent deferrals while the theaters are closed, and with fairly long repayment terms, that tend to be around three years on average, but some go on to 10 years. From our understanding, many of these landlords have also provided outright rent abatement for the theaters, and they've also given, in a lot of cases, shift to variable rent payments that are linked to revenue over the near term that kind of let the theaters kind of gradually build up to more normalized operations. Provided just a bit of quantification here, EPR Properties, which is AMC's largest landlord of 53 locations, they reached an agreement back in July to cut annual rent, fixed rent expense for AMC by around 20%. So all these things together, I think it's pretty clear that the landlords are really sharing the burden here. And given the slower than expected recovery in theatrical attendance, we think that another round of negotiations between landlords and exhibitors on further rent reductions and deferrals is pretty likely. Now, I mentioned previously that the studios have done relatively little in terms of sharing the burden. In an ideal world, you would see each of the major studios, they would all offer up at least one kind of major release in an effort to kind of kickstart this industry get it back, get attendance, get people going to the theaters again. Now, Warner Brothers arguably did this. They did its part by releasing Tenet in early September when less than 70% of U.S. theaters were open. However, they paid a financial price in doing so, and none of the other studios followed suit. So as to the question of just why not, why haven't the other studios done this as well, I think there's several potential answers. We have some studios like Paramount and Sony. They've seemed to prioritize near-term cash flow and have elected to sell their films to streamers such as Apple TV or Prime Video. For Disney, I think there's a strong argument that shifting content to Disney+, Plus, which has been plagued by its own production delays for, you know, for new series, moving things to Disney+, Plus is actually the best decision for Disney shareholders because a lot of the equity story there is driven, is based on the idea of large Netflix-like growth for Disney+. Plus. And for the other studios like Universal that are quick to kind of push back release dates to 2021, I think for them, it was probably more of a simple financial calculation, but they just didn't want to risk permanently damaging the value of their major franchises. Uh, thanks, Hunter. Uh, let's drill into the credit. You guys recently launched on AMC Entertainment, obviously a major player in the industry and under a significant amount of stress. There's some contemplation of restructuring by year end, which might be an understatement. But Matt, I was wondering, could you talk about what affects the timing and that, you know, is AMC uniquely positioned here with the stress on its balance sheet? Thanks, Chris. So there are a few moving pieces that could impact timing. The company recently disclosed that they ended the third quarter with $418 million of cash. And, and given the dearth of new and compelling movies for consumers to watch in theaters that Hunter talked about earlier, I think attendance outlook is, is very challenged. 
despite this, AMC continues to open more theaters with now approximately 90% of its theaters open. And as a result, AMC's been burning roughly 90 to 120 million of cash per month, which would imply that the company only has approximately four to five months until it literally runs cash down to zero. We have our doubts that AMC would literally burn the last dollar before filing. Uh, and because of that, we think that the runway to bankruptcy is even shorter than that four to five months. AMC has been attempting to bolster liquidity with a variety of measures, some of which have gained a decent bit of traction. Specifically, they issued 55 million of stock in an at-the-market offering, and they've recently announced that they're trying to do a second program, which could raise a similar amount. The company also announced the sale of nine Baltic theaters for $77 million, about half of which has been received. And then recently, the company said that they're exploring other potential sources of liquidity, including renegotiations with landlords, joint ventures, minority investment, further asset sales, debt and equity issuance. And while this is a fairly expansive menu of options to increase liquidity, we're pretty skeptical about the company's ability to execute on many of these options and or generate the level of liquidity needed without burning the furniture to heat the house, so to speak. And while the recent asset sales have resulted in a, in a pretty good multiple, I think that the, the question is if you're selling good assets just to burn the cash, it's arguably not in the company's best interest. That's right. And I think the clock appears to be ticking. And those numbers you put up there are pretty bleak in terms of free cash flow burn and what the available liquidity could be, particularly from the menu of choices that they have. What would the restructuring of this business look like and, and how traumatic would it be? I mean, are we thinking this is capacity pruning, resizing the balance sheet or something you know, so more significant? So I think that our restructuring is likely going to be focused on accomplishing three goals. I think First, AMC is going to focus on stemming and funding the near-term cash burn. If the company files for bankruptcy, they will be given several important tools to help accomplish that goal. They'll be able to turn off some, if not all, of the cash interest payments to debt holders, which could save them over $200 million per year. And then the company will also be able to access dip funding to help bridge cash needs between now and a recovery from COVID. I think the second goal is they're going to look to optimize the theater footprint. So the company currently operates about a thousand theaters around the world, and they're gonna take a hard look at their footprint and decide which locations are needed, which are nice to have, and which they should close. And AMC is going to likely negotiate with their landlords to seek further rent concessions to help optimize their cost structure. And then to the extent that AMC is unable to reach a deal that works for them, bankruptcy offers the company tools to reject operating leases and crystallize those future rent payments into a claim against the bankruptcy estate. And then helpfully, under Section 502b6 of the Bankruptcy Code, landlord rejection damages are capped and cannot exceed an amount greater than one year's rent or 15% of the amount owed, not to exceed three years. And so I think the importance of this is that the threat of rejection, which can just make a landlord lose any future rent streams, can help AMC negotiate more favorable rent concessions that could help to move theaters from uh, you know, marginal economic viability to profitability. And so this process of rent negotiation and lease rejection will allow AMC to emerge with a stronger theater base and, and lower cost base that should help drive better operating performance post-COVID. And I think the third goal is 
they're going to have to resize the balance sheet to include less debt. AMC ended 2019 with leverage that was too high. It was about 6.2 times on a net basis. And pre-COVID, the company had guided to a long-term target of three times net leverage. And that's more in line with peers, though still higher, than a company like Cinemark, who ended 2019 with two times net leverage. And I think that when you look at where Cinemark is today, they're certainly feeling the pain, but due to their stronger balance sheet, they're nowhere near in the position that AMC is. And so AMC's debt reduction will allow them to generate organic cash flow, which they can invest in the business, use to pay down debt, or return to shareholders in the ordinary course, rather than struggle to service interest payments. Oh, thanks, Matt. And I guess let's focus on the piece of the puzzle, which is the lenders. AMC doesn't have a lot of hard assets. The theater base is, is largely leased. Yeah, how do you think about recoveries and what supports valuations? You're right. Movie theaters are a pretty asset-light model. At the year-end 2019, the company leased about 93% of its locations, so there's not very much owned real estate. The product here is created by studios, so there's no unique product ownership here. Value comes not from hard assets, but rather the important role that we believe theaters play in the content distribution ecosystem, which is something that Hunter touched on as well. I think COVID-19's created new obstacles and enhanced existing secular attendance headwinds. However, we don't think that this is going to serve as a death knell for theaters. We believe that theaters offer a unique customer value proposition for both avid and casual moviegoers. And the past six months should serve as a reminder of the significance many people place on out-of-home experiences. Furthermore, exclusive theatrical release will continue to serve an important role in the economics for studios. The lifespan of film monetization is surprisingly long and traditionally spans from a theatrical release to a home video to multi-pay TV, which is premium cable like HBO or SVOD like Netflix, and then basic cable. The value in subsequent windows is directly related to the film's box office performance, and PVOD appears likely to cannibalize the home video window in particular. Finally, we'd note that distribution platforms for PVOD releases are generally less advanced in international markets, and releasing digital versions raises the risk of piracy. This is a long way of saying that we're firm believers that theatrical exhibition will have an important role in the post-COVID movie ecosystem, and as such, will be a going concern reorganization if and when they do file for bankruptcy. Because of this, we value AMC using a multiple of what we think is, you know, quote unquote, normal EBITDA, which we try to sensitize to capture what we think a reasonable range of outcomes may be. And while it's very hard to know the precise shape and timing of any recovery from COVID impacts, we do expect the recovery to be catalyzed by the widespread availability of a COVID-19 vaccine or highly effective treatment option. And we don't assume that AMC gets attendance all the way back to 2019 levels in any of the scenarios that we run, but rather assume that attendance gets back to about 70 to 85%, depending on the case. And the decline is due to a number of factors, including the longer term secular attendance trends that we've already discussed, theater closures, and just longer term behavioral impacts from COVID. I think offsetting some of these headlight winds though, are gonna be cost savings, largely from rent reduction that we think AMC will be able to accomplish through a bankruptcy, and the potential for market share gains that Hunter also talked about. 
Uh, thanks, Matt. If I can, I just have one more question. A lot of us are thinking about the stimulus, particularly as we know that nothing's going to happen before the election next week and whether or not the politics will give the economy something you know, before or after a potential new president. You know, how much do you think the stimulus can support this situation here and whether it's you know more money in individuals' pockets or whether or not there'd be something directly applied to the theater industry given it's so emblematic of the issues with COVID as a service-oriented company? I'll take a crack at that. This is Matt. So I think stimulus that's directed to consumers and some more money in their pockets is not something that I think will ultimately help all that much. I think that one of the beauties of, uh, you know, the theatrical exhibition is it's not a terribly high price point. And that's part of why people like it. It's a relatively reasonable out-of-home experience that people can enjoy for a few hours. I think that the chances of a theater-specific stimulus package are a little bit hard to handicap, but it's not something that I'm overly banking on. I think that it's not vital to the economy. And I think that ultimately our view is that there's going to be a restructuring through a bankruptcy process and that the theaters will continue to exist. I think that if there was a greater risk that theaters were just literally going away, but for some kind of stimulus, that would increase the view in my eyes that there would be a more theater specific package. But since it's not the case, I'm a little skeptical that we see something like that. Thank you. And thank you, Hunter and Matt. This topic is just one more reminder of how far we are from normal life right now. And I'm sure we're all sort of prepared for the moment when there's a good slate of movies and we feel pretty safe getting into the theaters. You know, thanks for helping the audience focus on another area of distress in the credit markets right now. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks, Matt. Oh, you're welcome, Chris. Thanks. Hopefully we can be back soon. Thanks, Chris. Oh, and thank you, listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. If you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.